Hello, everybody. It is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Growing up as an astronomy-loving kid, Sandra Faber didn't even have a telescope, and it wasn't until college that she got her hands on a real grown-up one. The first time I walked into a big telescope dome, it was like a little lamb imprinting on its mama sheet. So I looked <laughs> at that telescope and I thought, my God, I'd like to use that. <laughs> and did she ever use it? Not just that 24-inch refractor at Swarthmore College, but some of the world's greatest telescopes, which Sandy has used to map parts of the universe and explain how they came to be. And she didn't just use telescopes either. She's helped to bring new ones into being. She's designed instruments that made them work better. She even helped save one of the world's most famous scopes from a case of near blindness. So you might say the lamb has become something of a shepherd. Note that we are talking here about a really wide range of scientific contributions, from observations to theoretical advances to nuts and bolts practical innovation. And today, Sandra Faber is one of the world's most respected astronomers and one of the world's most decorated, too. She has been showered with awards in recent years, including a presidentially bestowed National Medal of Science. But all of those accomplishments and accolades aside, the thing that she says pleases her most is a feeling of belonging in the universe, of being a part of that big story that she and fellow cosmologists have been putting together. I mean the 13.7 billion year saga that stretches from the time of the Big Bang to now and beyond. Sandy Faber is based here in our broadcast area. She's a professor of astronomy and astrophysics at UC Santa Cruz. And I have been wanting to talk to her for a long time. I finally got my opportunity just this past week as she was getting ready to give a public lecture entitled Cosmic Knowledge and the Long-Term Strategy of the Human Race. Here's my interview with Sandy Faber. When I say the word cosmos, what do you picture? Wow, that's an interesting question. I don't believe anybody has actually asked me that <laughs> question before. Well, first of all, I think of the cosmos as it is today. And being a human with limited capabilities, all I can do is imagine our part of the cosmos so I'm out there in inky blackness between the galaxies. And with my own eyes, I, I can't see very much. But if you'll allow me a big telescope to look around at the same time, I see a beautiful lacy tracery filaments of galaxies, almost rivers that coalesce and intersect in big clusters. The overall impression is how empty most of it is today and therefore how special we are in our environment, which is far from empty. Was that your image of the universe when you were young and, and first started thinking about being an astronomer? When I was young, I hardly had any picture of the cosmos at all. What I did as a kid, often, was go out and lie down in the backyard in my Cleveland, Ohio suburban house and just look up at the stars and wonder about those little points of light. I had a pair of binoculars that my dad gave me. I never had a telescope. And I would play them around on the Milky Way and see clusters and a few little faint nebular spots. And I found the, the questions that everybody asks when looking up at the night sky just utterly compelling. Questions such as? What is a star. Why are the stars where they are? Why aren't there more of them? Is it possible to be on a planet where there are lots more stars, maybe even dangerously many stars? I'd heard about the fact that we were in a galaxy. Do different parts of the galaxy look different? Where did these stars come from? And when I got a little bit older, I began to worry about where the whole thing came from. Uh, worry? <laughs> Wonder. Wonder. <laughs> well, you know, when I first ask you what you picture when, you, when I uh, say the word cosmos, you know, I think a lot of us carry a, an image around in our head of something very similar to what you described, actually, a lot of emptiness. And I, I, I started wondering, you know, as a kid drawn to that 
vast darkness, you know, that vast emptiness. But maybe not. Maybe drawing more to the points of light in it. Oh, that's an excellent question. Is the universe hostile or welcoming? And I always felt it was welcoming, I think instinctively, because we are here. And I knew as a child also instinctively that the universe produced us. And I will tell you that the most rewarding aspect of my being an astronomer all these years is to die with the story of the universe and therefore in some sort of self-centered way my story. Really? You know, you'll probably ask me a little bit about discovering this or that as an astronomer, and I've certainly enjoyed all that. But really what I've enjoyed is being able to know enough to understand the collective astronomical story which has emerged about the cosmos. Because this is our story, and it is a privilege to have enough knowledge such that the story just, it's not a struggle to understand. It just comes naturally to hand if you're an astronomer. This is a great gift. Are are you satisfied that the story as we know it now may not go back to whatever the beginning was, if there was one, that we start knowing things a split second after the Big Bang, but before that, all kinds of possibilities exist. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. Do you want to set aside that issue for a moment? <laughs> sure. And only talk about our, our universe is enough for now. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I was thinking of other universes, which means that it could go back for eternity. Um, you know, the story could go back through many, many, many Big Bangs. But uh, And actually, I'm a believer in that. Are you? The we could talk about that separately. Eternal inflation? Mm-hmm. Sure. Let's talk about our universe and that patch of it that is all of it that we can know, the observable universe. Mm-hmm. What about it? So are you satisfied that we have this story that begins a fraction of a second after the Big Bang? And and after that, you know, we have a pretty clear picture of many things that happened? I am satisfied, (laughs) and that's what I meant by feeling very deeply satisfied. Satisfied in two ways. Am I satisfied that it's basically the right story, and am I satisfied that it's a satisfactory story? Is, Is it a satisfying story? And on both counts, I am satisfied. What makes it a satisfying story for you? Because it shows the essential unity of physics. If I could just use the word physics as sort of a, an all-encompassing word for natural law, all right? Right. It just shows how seamless events were on the one hand. We don't have to invoke any miracles. But on the other hand, it also shows us that we're incredibly rare and incredibly lucky here to live on this Earth. This is the part of the story that's just now emerging, the question about other planets. And paradoxically, yes, we know that they're all over the place, but in some strange way, at least thus far, they're all different from us. And finding exactly the combination of parameters that makes a habitable Earth, we We're on that track. We still don't get it quite yet. Uh, But the answer to that seems to be that doesn't happen all the time by any means. That's rare. So there's this wonderful sense of inevitability to the story, and yet the feeling that we here on Earth are incredibly lucky and the beneficiaries of a, a beautiful habitat that we have here that just doesn't exist in most places. Catch us up a little bit on that news about other planets. I think most everybody has heard that surveys by groups that you've been involved in, in fact, as well as other groups, right, have turned up a lot of planets in our galaxy and and beyond or, or just in our galaxy. Thus far, only in our galaxy and actually not that far away. The Kepler planets are, you know, I guess up up to a several hundred light years, maybe even a few thousand light years away. But by and large, I guess we would say our local swimming hole. And how many so far have been counted? Well, I don't keep up daily. I think <laughs> last I looked, Kepler had over 3,000 candidates. 3,000 candidates, and that's just one patch of one of many, many, many galaxies. Uh, that's very true. But you see, the interesting thing is you don't have to find every planet in the galaxy to understand the phenomenon of planets. Right. So what people have been doing is studying the statistics 
And one of the great discoveries of Kepler is that planets are so frequent that, you know, scratch a star, you're probably finding one or more planets. And this is actually good news because it says that we don't have to look that far away in order to find them. They're actually lurking there around our neighbor stars in space. And this is really good because the closer things are, the more we're going to be able to study them. So the next wave of planet study will be to excavate, if you will, or, or unearth. <laughs> hey, that's a good word. Unearth plan- unearthing planets around other stars. <laughs> yeah, well, my only point uh, in, in saying what I said a moment ago is that by extrapolation, there's obviously tons and tons of planets out there. That's exactly right. Yet you're saying that ours is very rare. In what sense? Well, thus far, that's the case. Meaning? Meaning that... Um, I have to put in a caveat, you know, most people studying planets will say, wait a minute, Sandy, the Earth isn't very massive, and it's hard to find small planets like this, so we've barely scratched the surface of small planets like Earth. Um, But in a general way, what we're finding is that the structure of solar systems that we found thus far doesn't look like us. Um, In general, the distribution of planets and their masses as a function of distance from the sun, is different, way different from our solar system. That's point number one. Uh, point number two, as we begin to understand solar system physics better, we can see that getting a solar system is finely balanced with beautifully circular orbits. That's what it takes to have a stable solar system that lasts for billions of years. That seems to be somewhat problematic. Most of the solar systems we're finding are not so beautifully organized. And most interesting of all, people are now wondering about Earth itself. And this is where things are least well understood. But there are people who would, who would say that we need a moon in order to have a habitable Earth. Really? And the theories about making our moon, our moon is very unusual in our solar system because it's so massive uh, relative to the size of Earth. And there are, the general theory is that a Mars-like body crashed into Earth and broke Earth apart and created the moon. Uh, and calculations of how often that event would happen are extremely, you know, indicate very, very rare. And I think as we study the problem, we find that there are more and more wonderful things that are unique about Earth. It's, it's composition. Well, I shouldn't use the word unique. We don't know. But in any case, it's the hitting the Earth with its properties, is a small target. How often does that happen? Mm. Why would the the moon be necessary for conditions that give rise to life? Uh, I think the prevailing thought here is that the moon stabilizes the axis of rotation of the Earth, which otherwise would tend to wobble. And, you know, it's the axis of rotation of the Earth pointing basically perpendicular to the ecliptic plane that gives us nice, well-behaved seasons and a climate that's fairly stable. Imagine what would happen to our climate if the North Pole pointed at the sun. It completely changes the way sunlight falls on Earth and the kind of climate that we have on Earth. And, uh, you know, what exactly, what effect would that have? Would that prevent intelligent life? I can't answer that question yet, but it would certainly be a very different planet. So... It may be premature to talk about the Earth being rare, given how many other possible planets exist out there in our galaxy alone. But so far, it does seem kind of special. And you add that to the fact that the universe itself is kind of special in the sense that the physical constants that govern our universe seem to fall within a very narrow range of possibilities that could have given rise to a universe that accommodates life I mean, life can't happen anywhere. You need uh, certain kinds of chemical processes. You need a certain temperature range. You need the ability to form stable compounds and then for those compounds to, you know, get more complicated and uh, form small organisms and so on and so forth over a long span of time. So you need a lot of special things. And we've A lot of people have talked about how special the universe is. And this has caused some people to think, oh, this is proof that we are divinely chosen. Um, I've I've read some interviews with you, and I know you've contemplated theological questions 
but you're obviously in favor of seeing things as potentially very special, but not necessarily as guided by some deity, right? <laughs> exactly, yes. And I think you've made a connection that I often make myself, namely the, the rarity of our universe versus the rarity of our planet. And I actually use the emerging theory of planets and where they're distributed and so on to guide my thinking about the rarity of the universe and the existence of other universes. So supposing you in nature are confronted with a phenomenon that seems to be incredibly rare or delicately put together. I don't know how you want to phrase it. So it seems to me that you have two choices. One choice is that it was formed by some kind of conscious being, either deliberately or not. That there's some kind of divine providence involved. Divine providence, yes. Um, but the other possibility, which comes to us exactly from the study of planets, you see, if we had been sitting alone on Earth, as we were for thousands of years, we might easily have assumed that some divine providence had created Earth. But now, as astronomers, we, we discover planets elsewhere. And what the key thing is that they're, they're there in profusion. There are many of them. And they're all different. There's some machine out there that is creating stars, and along with it, solar systems. And the solar systems are all different, and the planets in them are all different. And, wow, there are so many different ways you can make a solar system. It's absolutely bewilderingly complex. But that's great because there's an ensemble out there of possibilities. And there are so many solar systems that once in a while, evidently, you're going to get something like Earth. And that's where we are. We didn't have to be put here divinely. It's rather that we grew up and evolved to take advantage of all the wonderful properties of Earth per se. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But maybe there are intelligent, <laughs> maybe there's intelligent life or life at all in other environments that are somewhat different. And this is the, again the great wonderful question of astrobiology going forward. Yeah, yeah. And when you say there's a machine mm -hmm. uh, creating stars and planets, you mean gravity, don't you? Uh, this is true. The basic driving force of complexity in our universe is the attractive force of gravity because it's that attractive force that draws matter together where it can do new and interesting things, and it, it's that attractive force that is opposing the outward push of the universe's expansion. So if it weren't for gravity, if the universe were just expanding and there was no gravity in it, everything would become an incredibly boring, homogeneous, dilute soup, and there wouldn't be anything interesting happening. It's gravity that gets the blobs where interesting stuff happens. Stars shine, planets form. Where would your field, cosmology, be without um, Einstein's discovery, uh, general relativity, which is about gravity, of course, and the way it works? Well, without general relativity, we wouldn't be able to compute the large-scale geometry of the universe as a whole and how light propagates through it. Um, I'm doing a, a sort of a quick refresher course here of what I understand about general relativity. That's point, <laughs> that's point number one. So if you want to predict the appearance of the universe in the large, uh, you know, how bright things look when they're far away, how fat they look on the sky, you need GR. Actually... My field is forming galaxies, and it was early shown in the history of general relativity that you could get 99% of galaxy formation, the gravity that you need to make a galaxy and understand that, just from Newton's law. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah. And so I've, I've, uh, I've been a little bit intellectually lazy in my <laughs> career, and I haven't spent years perfecting my knowledge of GR because I actually don't need it. Wow, wow, yeah. So you are most famous for uh, a lot of your work on the formation of galaxies, including um, the cold dark matter theory that's credited, uh, at least in part, to you and uh, George Blumenthal and Joel Premack uh, at UC Santa Cruz. And this is now the predominant theory of how galaxies formed, um, based on this mysterious matter that seems to have had a role in condensing galaxies. That's right, yes. We wrote a paper in 1984, and um, 
we didn't invent the idea of, of cold dark matter, although George and Joel Premack were thinking very actively about new kinds of matter, which would be dark. But um, the cold dark matter theory, we picked that up in 1984, and we were the first people to attempt a soup-to-nuts analysis of what, if you put cold dark matter in the universe, what would it do as far as forming galaxies and clusters of galaxies and superclusters? And then we made some predictions from the theory about the masses and the sizes and the orbital speeds inside these objects and compared to actual data on galaxies and clusters of galaxies and showed that there was a remarkable match over 13 orders of magnitude in mass. Wow. And, and that work has stood up? Yes. And the current picture of cold dark matter is that it accounts for what percent of the mass of, of galaxies? That's a complicated question, how much cold dark matter is there in galaxies. Um, because within a galaxy, the, the cold dark matter versus the normal matter that you and I are made out of, the periodic table matter, um, is stratified. So the normal matter is found more frequently near the middle of a galaxy and in the outskirts of a galaxy, invisible because this dark matter is dark, it doesn't shine. There's an enormous dark halo that surrounds the galaxy. So the galaxies are actually much bigger than they look on a photographic plate because all the stars are in the middle. So to answer your question, if we average over a galaxy as a whole, about five-sixths of the matter is dark and one-sixth of it is kind of coalesced towards the middle where it's making stars. Yeah, that's exactly what I meant. Uh, the galaxy as a whole, meaning that part, that very, very large part that uh, is completely invisible to us, uh, mm -hmm. that surrounds uh, the well-lit part of the galaxy. And the thinking is that this cold dark matter is a kind of elementary particle that simply does not interact with light so that it does not reflect light, it does not emit light, and that's why we can't see it. That's correct. The only force that it interacts strongly with is gravity. Gravity, right. It responds to gravity and it produces, it generates gravity like normal mass does. And it's actually that generating power of gravity from dark matter that gives rise to all the structure that we see in the universe, including the formation of our own Milky Way. Mm. But let me just say, for the benefit of listeners, sure. uh, that um, please don't get the, the impression that all the dark matter is in the outer part of our galaxy. No, it is intermixed. It's just relatively less frequent where we live down here in the, gal the visible galaxy. And so there's dark matter around us as we're having this conversation. It's zipping <laughs> through the rooms we're sitting in. Yes, and it passes right through ordinary matter. It does. And so just to, to make it more tangible, imagine a quart bottle sitting on the counter on average, there's one dark matter particle in that, in that quart container. And it's moving along at two or 300 kilometers per second, uh, you know, one or 200 miles a second. It's orbiting the center of the galaxy. It's zipping through the walls and ceilings of the room. It's going through our bodies because it doesn't interact. And that's why it's been so hard to substantiate this because you put out an experiment to trap the stuff it just zips right through. <laughs> and by the way, these experiments are these huge detectors. Um, most of them are buried underground, right? That's right. Uh, to avoid interference from other kinds of particles passing through. And uh, they cost a lot of money, and people are investing years of time. Do you know any of these people, and are they really frustrated uh, because all these particles are around them, and yet they can't detect them? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they're frustrated so much as they are challenged. <laughs> I think they all think that there's definitely a Nobel Prize in this for the first experiment to find the dark matter. And as, as you well know, there's another way of going out about studying dark matter, and that's to produce it in, in the laboratory at the CERN. Uh, exactly. Right, and so they're busy working on that, too, and we're very hopeful that that will happen. Yeah, so you mentioned uh, CERN, where they have the, the Large Hadron Collider, the big particle accelerator. Um, they're hoping that some of these collisions will, will produce uh, dark matter particles so they can understand what dark matter is made of. Um, and uh, while we're on the subject of uh, big fancy equipment, you're known both for your contribution to theory, the theory of, say, galaxy formation, but also, I guess, for helping to 
create and in one famous case fix some of the instruments that are used to study space. Yes, you know, this. one of the great things about being an astronomer is how many facets, different facets of the field there are so that you can get deeply involved in very different kinds of activities. And that, I find that very satisfying. My dad was a civil engineer, so I have an engineering streak in me, and I really love telescopes. This is I, probably the reason why I'm an astronomer. The first time I walked into a big telescope dome, it was like a little lamb imprinting on its mama sheet. So <laughs> I looked at that telescope and I thought, my God, I'd like to use that. <laughs> Where was that, by the way? You were in Cleveland when you were growing up. There were no great observatories nearby, were there? No, the, that moment, that bonding moment occurred at um, Swarthmore College, which had a 24-inch refractor. Small by my standards today, but big for me at the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, when I said you were involved in fixing a famous instrument, this was the Hubble, the, the, the camera, right? It was the camera in the Hubble, is that correct? Uh or it the was mirror? More, than, more than the camera, because the flaw in Hubble, everybody who was alive then remembers that Hubble didn't work. And people invented all of these really dreadful slogans like Hubble trouble, yes. Hubble sees double, it was awful. <laughs> oh, right, so uh, it was a problem with the telescope, and the telescope, light from the telescope was feeding all the instruments, so all the instruments had the same trouble. And the I served on a, first of all, I, I should say that I was very lucky in a position to actually diagnose what was wrong. I was the second in command at the time for the Widefield camera team. And the Widefield camera was the main camera on Hubble. And it was the best way to diagnose what was wrong with the images. So um, my postdoc, former student actually, John Holtzman, and I, used some software, we didn't write the software, but we made use of it, that would calculate images from aberrated, flawed telescopes. And we made a model of the images that was very, very successful in explaining exactly how they looked bad. And uh, the whole team had been floundering, the Hubble team had been floundering, not knowing what was wrong. Why didn't this telescope work? <clears throat> and all the test equipment on board wasn't working to diagnose because the images were so bad that they were out of the boundary in which the test equipment could actually even perform. So we had to fall back on our camera, and John and I made the this study, presented it to the Hubble management, and showed a series of images that exactly matched the appearances of the flawed images that were being seen. So... In that moment, it was realized by everybody what was wrong. And what was wrong was that the surface of the Hubble mirror had been wrongly polished. It was a beautiful mirror. It was the most beautiful mirror ever made, but it was the wrong shape. <laughs> Just by, by a tiny, tiny, tiny increment, right? Well, tiny by normal, everyday standards, but not tiny for opticians. For opticians, growth. Awful. Oh, really? Oh, oh t totally, yes. And that's a very long and wonderful story. If you want to interview me some other time, I'll <laughs> sure. tell you exactly how the, what went wrong. It's a fascinating study in science. You and John Holtzman, you say, are the ones who had the, the honor of discovering the flaw and identifying it. And then you were involved in sort of fitting the Hubble with corrective lenses or whatever it was the, the astronauts had to do to get it working again? I was somewhat involved. Um, I sat on a committee which was supposed to figure out, a committee of optical experts, supposed to figure out and recommend a, a scheme to fix Hubble. And um, there was a popular song at the time, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. Yeah, Paul I, Simon. I called our yeah. committee... 50 bad ways to fix Hubble, because it was not easy to fix Hubble. There was no button that you could push from the ground, you know? Right. So every option was unattractive and difficult in some way. And what they ultimately, what this committee ultimately recommended and was done, was a separate fix for each one of the instruments. And this series of fixes took three years to implement, which is like uh, lightning fast in the world of aerospace engineering, 
the whole community got together, pulled in the same direction with one voice, got this fixed program implemented, and three years later, after another visit to Hubble when some op- new optics was installed, um, the images were like 99% as good as what they were supposed to be. Uh, how long is, is the Hubble Space Telescope going to be in operation? Well, now it's, it's on its last refurbishment. Uh, it, it had a total of four refurbishment missions. When it was first sent up in 1990, its design lifetime was like a decade. But it's proved so durable and so valuable that there's been uh, two additional refurbishment missions. The last one, I was also involved with that one because it was controversial. Would it happen or not? NASA didn't want to do it, but public pressure and a National Academy Blue Ribbon Committee that I sat on more or less forced them into doing it. So this is the last one, though. And when uh, components start to fail at this point, uh, Hubble will not be fixed. Um, That must be rather sad for a lover of telescopes like yourself. Yeah, it, it will be extremely sad. We'll have to hold some appropriate ceremonies. Is there a replacement being readied? Or? Yes. Oh, good. Um, there is a replacement. It's a little bit different from Hubble, though. It's going to work at longer wavelengths in the infrared. It's called the James Webb Space Telescope. And its planned completion date is a few years from now. It's been a somewhat troubled project with lots of cost overruns. So astronomers are sitting here with our fingers crossed, hoping that from now on they'll stay on schedule and budget. Uh, but going back to these, these missions that were sent up to first correct the optics, uh, like I say, put glasses on the Hubble, mm-hmm. uh, and then to refurbish it, you were involved in those. Did you see this movie that came out this last year, Gravity? Oh, I did. I thought it was fabulous. I, I, I had to get your opinion. I mean, no, oh, no. It, was, it, was, it was absolutely wonderful. I thought the special effects, it looked very, very believable to me. I've never been in space, you know, so I can't really tell you what it's like, but I've watched films of people in space. I thought it was beautifully done. Uh, the, the one annoying thing was the, the cute little thing at the beginning where George Clooney is sort of zipping around impromptu on his little ski-mobile. <laughs> space chair. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and having a chatty conversation with yeah. somebody who's, who's um, Sandra Bullock is trying to fix the equipment. It, it doesn't happen that way. Everybody knows that. <laughs> I had heard that one thing that was completely unrealistic also is that they they jetted around with that little space chair from one orbit to another exactly. very precisely, going <laughs> right. from the disabled space station they started into a Chinese space station. I can't remember what it was, but another one in another orbit, and apparently that maneuver is unbelievably complicated. Oh, sure. And, and, and the fact that you would even find three different spacecraft so close together right but even right yeah, yeah let's just ridiculous. let's just head right over there <laughs> right <laughs> like walking across the street no but you know there's a certain amount of suspension of disbelief sure sure <laughs> well it sure made things look awfully complicated simply from a you know the point of view of trying to function in a zero gravity environment and it you know, made me think about the actual missions, uh, which I hadn't given a lot of thought to, um, like the ones that you were part of organizing, to send people out on spacewalks to repair equipment. Yeah. Uh, how difficult that is in some respects. Well, um, don't give me too much credit. I sure, <laughs> I sure didn't plan the details of those missions. And the fact that last time, for the last mission, where we more or less forced NASA to go ahead with it, you know, I was sitting safely on the ground saying, you guys, you should go do this. <laughs> but I didn't actually have to do it. <laughs> now, I, I imagine you have wanted to go to space, yes? Actually, no. Oh. Not particularly, no, um, because it was obvious uh, from the very early days that if you wanted to go into space, you had to devote your entire life to that. Mm. And uh, I actually found it much more interesting and satisfying to be making measurements to figure things out rather than being a, a space cowboy up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to ask about another gadget that you were very much involved in. Uh, we talked about the, the Hubble Space Telescope. Um, 
This is the Deep Imaging Multi-Object Spectrograph. DEMOS, is that how it's pronounced? That's right. That's probably my biggest personal baby. Yeah, and I've heard it was a quite a spectacular achievement. Um, it is used at the Keck Telescope in Hawaii, right? That's right. So um, I was also involved in the design of, of the Keck Telescopes themselves, and their reason for being, I was the person more than anybody else, who developed the science case for the Kecks. And uh, we have to sort of put ourselves back in perspective. The year that the Keck telescopes began was 1977, and they actually began in a meeting up on campus here in Room 190. That was the conference room of the astronomy department in, in uh, uh, Natsai 2. So we were having this meeting and bemoaning the fact, oh, gosh, it's getting... The skies are getting brighter over Mount Hamilton, Lick Observatory. What are we going to do? And one of my colleagues popped up one day and said, Joe Wampler, he said, I think we can build a 10-meter telescope. And at the time, the largest telescope that had ever been made that really worked was the Palomar 5-meter telescope, the 200-inch. So Joe was saying, I think we can build a 400-inch telescope. And I got very excited and... uh, began to think about what a telescope like that could do if we put it out in Hawaii at 14,000 feet, where conditions are better than they are here on the continental United States. And what could we do if we began to build more capable instruments that could observe more than one object at a time? And I just I convinced myself quickly that if we started from scratch, optimizing everything about the telescope as we went along, we could at every stage sort of get a factor of two or four. And so I was finding, wow, I'm going to put this all together. and I, I can get a thousand times more light than what we're currently getting with the 120-inch telescope on Mount Hamilton. And you know, with that kind of greater light graph, what could we do with that? So I, I thought up 35 science cases. They've all been done now. Uh, but an interesting at Keck. And, and that got people very excited, and then in 1992, the first telescope was, was finished. So it took 15 years from our initial idea to reality. Well, well, it's one thing for a bunch of astronomy geeks to fantasize about a big telescope. Uh, another thing to get the how many millions of dollars it takes to build one and put it on a mountaintop. Well, you're not kidding. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, we're talking, this is a wonderful review of my career, <laughs> Um, So there's politics and uh, salesmanship and PR and marketing. And I'll I'll say rather humorously that um, I think a lot of these projects get started because their magnitude and cost is underestimated at the beginning. (laughs) You get people hooked on these ideas. (laughs) And we did here with with the Keck telescopes, I'll never forget a meeting we had with the then-president, UC President David Saxon, and his support was needed in order to get a few million dollars of study money to put into this, or even less than a few million. I remember my colleague, we we should be uh, celebrating Jerry Nelson in this bit of the interview, because Jerry was the person who came up with the segmented mirror concept, which is what has made the Keck and other big telescopes possible. Um. So, and that is that it's it's not one big piece of glass, right? It's a bunch. That's right. It's, the Kecks are 36 segments. And, but now UC is entering into a partnership for the 30-meter telescope, and I think that has 496 segments. All of them independently manipulated. Yeah. It turned, it turned out that the segmented design was expandable. Jerry will now say that he knew this all along, that in building the Kecks, he realized that he was only building a prototype to the next <laughs> wow. But you're, you're saying that you guys succeeded by lowballing. Yeah, we did, but we were innocent. It was not at all. We were just overly optimistic. We walked into David Saxon's office, and Jerry, who's extraordinarily articulate and persuasive, was arguing to David Saxon that this was a $10 million telescope. And that's not so much, you know. And I think David Saxon knew better. He was a wise man, but... He, even if it turned out to be more, he, he was still impressed by its power. Mm. So we went ahead with the development phase. Jerry led that. 
Well, tell us about this um, deep imaging multi-object spectrograph, DEMOS, that you um, helped invent and that works with the telescope you just described. Right. So the whole point here is that um, telescopes historically have been somewhat underutilized when you're trying to take a spectrum. You know, there's a difference, basic difference in astronomy between just taking a picture, like sticking a photographic plate in there, the light comes to a focus in all the different parts, and you get star images all over the plate. Um, so that's a picture. But actually, astronomers learn most of their information, not just from pictures, but also from spectra. So take one of those star images, um, put a surface there which blocks out all the light except in that one little place, a little hole in a plate. The light goes through the hole into something called a spectrograph, which takes a picture of that star, but in the process spreads it out into a stripe. It's a spectrum, so that it's red at one end and blue at the other end. And spread it out a lot so that you can see a lot of spectral features, places where the light wavelengths, colors where the light is bright and where it's dim. And all of those features are like fingerprints in the spectrum tell you, is this a star? Is it a galaxy? Is it a glowing gas cloud? What's it made of? How fast is it moving? Etc. It's amazing what you can learn from a spectrum. Wow. So, so is that how you get the majority of your information then from spectral analysis like that? That is true of my career. I'm uh -huh. basically a spectroscopist, but there are lots of people who do photometry of pictures too. Hmm. So I'm, I'm just highlighting the fact that there are two approaches here. So historically, the people who were taking spectra were wasting light in the sense that they, they had one hole in the plate, and all the light from all the other stars was, was you know, landing on an opaque surface and not getting used. So uh, I would say maybe 25 years ago, um, a person who was actually my Ph.D. student, a guy by the name of Alan Dressler, uh, after he left us in Santa Cruz, he conceived the notion of, gosh, uh, even with existing spectrographs, I could probably make multiple holes and get multiple spectra at one time. And he tried this out in kind of a small way. And by the time Keck, the Kecks came along, uh, people were thinking about this really in a big way. And I could see from sketching out some simple designs that I could get um, maybe 100 or 200 spectra at a time. So that's like building 200 telescopes, you know? That's, hmm. You're going to get information 200 times as fast. So that's the basic notion of the multi-object spectrograph. And um, we desperately needed that because even with the power of the Keck, its high aperture, large aperture, um, people like myself, many others, were thinking about looking back in time to study galaxy evolution. And to look back in time uh, a useful amount, you have to look far out in space and things get very small and dim at that distance. Mm -hmm. And so if you're forced to observe these things one at a time, you'll never accumulate a sample that's big enough to mean anything. But if you could go 100 times faster, now, uh, you know, with Deimos, we were um, in our, the middle of our big survey. People are still doing this with Deimos, observing 1,000 galaxies a night. So it doesn't take that many nights of telescope time to build up a really good sample. Uh, interesting. Speed is of the essence. Um, you're trying to survey huge swaths of the universe, right? And, and, and all kinds of objects in them. And Absolutely. So huh. here, here's a nice mental image, okay? How faint is the faint galaxy, faintest galaxy that Deimos is routinely studying? I was going to ask you that. Okay. So, you know, I could give you some number and units of what the eye can see. In them. But don't worry about that. Here's another way of thinking about it. That distant object is sending out a rain of photons. And some of those photons are landing on the mirror of the Keck telescope. Think of that, about that as sort of a model as a drizzle. You know, mm -hmm. Is it a downpour? Is it a drizzle? What is it? Well, that rain of photons is so imperceptible that if, you, if it were rain, if they were raindrops, you would not even know that it was raining. Right. It's about one photon per second 
Oh my God! Falling, falling on the keck mirror. Oh wow! Right, one or ten photons a second. So you you just and and the keck mirror is the size of a big living room, right? So that's that's not much of a photon flux. That's what we're trying to grasp, and we can't afford to waste a single photon. Astronomers are really big on efficiency and throughput. And uh, we should explain the remark you made a moment ago that you're using the telescope sort of like a time machine because these distant galaxies are so far away that the light that you're seeing left them billions of years ago. So what you're seeing is billions of years old. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's so called the look-back effect. The look-back effect, peering into the past by Correct. looking far yeah. away. So these big telescopes are really the only time machines that people have, in other words, that allow you to look at a different era than your current era. Unfortunately, they only allow you to look back in time. Nobody's figured out a telescope that will allow you to look forward. <laughs> <laughs> but your, uh, your talk is looking forward in time in a way. Uh, how's that for a nice tie-in? Um, your talk that is coming up uh, this week on uh, Wednesday, February 5th uh, at UC Santa Cruz is called Cosmic Knowledge and the Long-Term Strategy of the Human Race. Yeah. So, so tell us what that means. Well, the upshot of all of this is that we've, we've really figured out the past, and once you've figured out the past, unless something spectacularly different intervenes, it's pretty straightforward to extrapolate the knowledge that you've got about the past into the future. And uh, that's what we're now in a position to do. It's not a completely solved problem because we don't fully understand the the past. We don't fully understand the formation of the Earth. We were talking about this before. Is the Earth truly rare or not? Um, you know, we're still working those things out, but it's, it's clear that we're on the right track. And I would say within the next tens of years, we really will have understood questions like that in much greater satisfactory detail. So let's think about the future. And Already, the, the outlines of, of this are becoming clear. Uh, the future is bright ahead. I mean, we've, we've been coexisting here quite happily, our Earth has anyway, for the last almost five billion years. And, um, you know, we can think about the properties of the sun going forward. The sun's getting brighter, which in the long run is not good. But probably several hundred million years, maybe as much as a billion years ahead on that score. Uh, there are some cosmic catastrophes, but they are pretty rare and typically turn up asteroid impacts, you know, every hundred million years or so. And we're getting much better about predicting those, by the way. And I'll, I, I would go out on a limb and say it's likely that we'll be able to steer asteroids in the not-too-distant future and prevent the biggest collisions. Oh, that's reassuring. There are reassuring. a bunch of other things that you can think about, but they're, they're all pretty rare. And, and so the point is that uh, human history here is of order of magnitude a million years. Well, we have many factors uh, greater than that than we can almost literally count on. We've been given a fabulous gift here of a stable environment, a beautifully hospitable planet. And I think it's, if, if we're ever going to start to think about the larger opportunities, I guess that's what I would call it, the larger opportunities that the universe has given us, now is the time. This is when we become cosmically self-aware. We begin to think not like little kids, but mature, a mature galactic civilization. What are we going to do with this? That's the question I want to pose to my audience. I think that those who believe in sort of unlimited technological potential think, oh, we'll, we'll figure out a way to fix things later. Yes, well, that's, that's, <laughs> that's fine, but um, actually I'm going to show some very sobering statistics that a successful species living on Earth for hundreds of millions or a billion years has to live completely differently from how we live now. And you mean sustainably? Sustainably, but only astronomers really understand that word sustainably. Because of the time scales? Time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
Um, Sandy, I'm really interested in the kinds of questions that people bring to you, uh, ordinary people. Uh, there's this very old feeling that when we talk about space, we're not just talking about ordinary physics. We're, we're talking about something transcendental. You know, we're talking about something magical or theological. And you, as someone who's looked way out there and knows a lot about what's going on out there compared to the rest of us, do people treat you as though you have some kind of mystical wisdom? No, I don't think people treat me as though I have any mystical wisdom. I think they enjoy very much hearing what I have to say, what I and I hasten to add my colleagues have to say. Uh, People hunger after this kind of information in a very deep way. I haven't really quite figured out why that is. I think it's the same hunger that drives people, some people, to find solutions via religion. Um, Everyone is looking for meaning. And, you know, you can think about cosmology and meaning in two different ways. If you are looking for a reason why you exist or a purpose, let's put it this way. If you are looking for purpose, you are not going to find it in the modern theory of cosmology. (laughs) On the other hand, if you are looking for unity, for belonging, for beauty, for harmony, that is what you are going to find. And you said an interesting thing. People somehow feel that physics on these larger scales is miraculous. It's, it's exactly that which we are, are showing is not so. And that, to me, is so incredibly comforting. We are making the universe our own. It's not a mystery anymore. It's not something that we have to fear. We are it, and it is us. And to the extent that there is something very satisfying about getting answers to these questions. I would say, for me, that pretty much sums it up. I'm a child of the universe, so are you. The universe made us. It's like living in our beautiful hometown, our beautiful United States of America, our place in the world, our planet Earth, our place in the galaxy, our universe, which I believe is our place in a sea of inestimably many millions and billions of other universes. So that's, I think, the closest I can come. No purpose, but a very harmonious and beautiful and, to me, deeply satisfying picture. Wow, Sandy, quite a summing up there. I'm almost speechless, but do want to say thank you before I run out of words. Okay, you're very (laughs) welcome. Sandra Faber is University Professor of Astronomy and Astrophysics at UC Santa Cruz and Interim Director of the UC Observatories. This has been the 7th Avenue Project, online at 7thAvenueProject.com. I'm Robert Pollack, your host. I'll be back next week.